Well, you're listening to Rebuilders. We have a jam-packed session today. Yeah, we do. We are going to ask the question, how do we read culture um, from a biblical perspective? But how do we do that at a time when there just seems to be more ideologies than ever before? So today, we're going to ask the question, how do we look at all these things like libertarianism, critical theory, Joe Rogan, (laughs) kangaroo meat, (laughs) utilitarianism, liberalism, uh, conspiracy theories. How do we look at all these different things and things which may be present um, amongst our friends, our family, if you're a leader, perhaps in the, the people you lead, perhaps in the congregation you're preaching to, how do you actually understand these things from a biblical perspective and how do we tell the one true story of the gospel in such challenging times? Great. And as always, if you want to know more about the books or articles that we reference in the episode, you can subscribe to our mailing list by going to rebuilders.co. Let's get into it. Hi, welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark. How are you going? I'm doing well. Although right. I must say our pastry game is pretty <laughs> bad today. Ooh. You and I have nothing. Daniel no. has a, <laughs> like a, four day a microwave <laughs> four-day-old croissant. We had our first service back on the weekend. We and did. we had pastries for all and sundry. Yes. And uh, yeah, so, but it makes me feel like I, I have to confront something. We've been talking about diagnosing and and <laughs> how the gospel critiques our, our culture as well. Yeah. Can I ask you a really dangerous question at this point in time? Well, no. I don't know. If it's pastry-related, I won't. Was, as, as the- we, we're now out of um, lockdown here in Melbourne town and uh, hitting, you know, going to hit 93, 94% vaccination, so we're in a good place. But I must ask the question, were pastries our coping mechanism for being the world's most locked down city? Boom. Were we self-medicating through pastries? Were we self-medicating through staggeringly good pastries? And some staggeringly awful gingerbread. Well, I think that that's when I start to question things. <laughs> As your um, elected member for parliament, <laughs> I'm ashamed of my constituency. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. And the yeah. very left turn you've taken. Well, it's just, it's not left turn. It's a populist anti-big donut <laughs> turn we're taking. Yeah. Well, I'm holding strong. I'm staying true to the... The pastry course. Yeah, but look what you're eating, man. Yeah. I know. It's, it's Staying the true the to the pastry <laughs> yeah, I just don't know what to believe with anymore. Yeah. stale, buttery well, Next year's a new year. What if we, we look forward in anticipation of what we might, what mascot we'll have? As, <laughs> I think we should have kangaroo concept. steaks. <laughs> just, I'm just, not eating kangaroo steaks on a Wednesday morning. If you're watching this on YouTube. <laughs> just to freak <laughs> out our international listeners who don't realise that people do eat kangaroo. It's mm. quite a lean meat. It's, it's a very lean meat and well. it's a sustainable it's, meat. It's quite good. Yeah. 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 All right, next year on the electric frying pan <laughs> on your desk, on your sound desk there, Daniel, and you can be flipping cooking us. Cooking show component of our. Lean, the lean two-legged hopping. <laughs> We'll eat our national symbol. Did you know, just a little side note, I um, there's a pub in Fitzroy that does a, um, a palmer 
Um, for those of you listening that don't know what a parmer is, it's like a, a chicken parmigiana, but we call it a parma here in Victoria. Apparently, parmy other Arnie, places parmy in, in South yeah, Well, Thank good you. on you. Um, but it, instead of doing ham, it has like thinly sliced kangaroo. Oh wow! Oh. Yeah, it was actually it's actually quite good. I really mm. like it. So you, you know, we'll have a rebuilder's outing. I've not had crocodile. No, mm. nor have I. Have you had okay. emu? No. I think I have once. I don't mm. remember what it was like then. Have you had horse? No. no. Is that ven- no, venison's? Not knowingly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I have. It wasn't great. Okay. So um, <laughs> moving on. Mm. Uh, the last few episodes we have been, uh, I guess, exploring how to read culture, how to take a step back from living in this uh, very confusing world at times and observing what our culture is all about, how it's formed and how do we respond and lead uh, in this space. So we're going to do that again today. Um, obviously it is, they are, they are, try, they are trying times. Mark. They are trying times. Um, and how do we read our culture? We're going to kind of do that live yeah. today. Yeah. I thought it'd be helpful to equip people yeah. to understand this. And um, again, continue to, you know, use the wonderful frameworks given to us by Leslie Newbegin. and oh, fave. Uh, We'll put in the show notes um, some links to, uh, or not the show notes. Well, I keep calling it the show notes because that's yeah. what other podcasts say. It's yeah, our no, subscriber it's our sus- email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, which you, yeah, yeah. you can get by going to rebuilders.co. Yeah. Um, so essentially Newbegin um, saw that one of the dangers for people communicating the gospel mm. is that they syncretize the mm. gospel with their own culture. So, in other words, that the gospel, the gospel <laughs> becomes bent, if you like, out of yeah. shape to suit their own idols, and yeah. and um, you know that was one of the the things that was seen throughout history. Yeah. Often, the the witness of the church has been blunted when our national goals, our cultural goals, our ideological goals become blurred with what the actual gospel is about. And mm. if the gospel is the one true story and Christ is the one true king over the whole universe, therefore everything must submit to that rule and reign. Yes. Um, so one of the things that uh, Newbegin said, which I find really helpful, which is, you know, inspired me for many, many years, is the idea that every culture has what he called a hidden credo. Mm-hmm. A hidden credo. In other words, uh, that every culture has something that it truly ultimately worships. Now- yeah. Newbegin made the really interesting point that um, it may not be what it says it actually worships. To give you an example outside of our culture, um, communism, which, uh, you know, as it took off in the Soviet Union and in China, uh, very much attempted to move beyond religion. You mm-hmm. know, uh, it saw religion as the opiate of the people and was creating what it called this new materialist improvement of the world. So it wanted to get beyond worship, get beyond religion. But really interesting, you saw something develop, which was a cult of personality. Um, uh, Khrushchev, the Russian premier, uh, denounced Stalin and said that a cult of personality had grown up around um, Stalin. And mm. Deng Xiaoping, the Chinese premier, also tried to sort of work against the cult of personality that grew up around Chairman Mao. Um, so what they were saying essentially was that even when communism tried to get rid of God, that still had this sense of hidden creed of worship. And even yeah. Lenin, who you know started the sort of uh, communist party in Russia, they embalmed his body like they would embalm the you know ancient sort of saints of of Russia, and people would go in and almost play homage and worship to this, yeah, this yeah. figure. Huh. So in a sense, what what Newbegin was saying is it's impossible not to be religious. Mm. Um, that uh, or Christopher Dawson. Um, uh, 
the sort of um, historian um, said that, you know, culture, the word culture comes from the word cultus, which means two things, to worship and to cultivate. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, Augustine said that our hearts are restless until they find their home in God. Scripture in Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God set eternity in our hearts. So every culture has a hidden, almost religious key that we need to uncover. So the task of the church in a missionary posture, whether that's in your culture or another culture, is to diagnose the culture and find what is the hidden credo, what is the hidden foundations that that culture ultimately worships, whether they say it or not. Well, okay, arguably many people might say we live in a secular culture, which means that we aren't religious at all. Yeah. What would you say to that? Yeah. That's one of the big questions that, Newbegin wrestled with. And his argument was that secularism ultimately was religious. The sort of claim of secularism really is, yes, it is to, you know, you can look at secularism two ways. You can say it's to get rid of God completely, like I just shared, the the communists did. But really Western secularism, as we understand, is more to have a public space, a public square, which is devoid of the influence of religion. You can Mm -hmm. still believe and worship in your own private space. Yeah. Um, so if you want to go to church, do it. If you want to be a Buddhist, do it. But in the public space, in government, in the marketplace, we you know don't bring those values there. So what right. secularism in the West attempts to do is to create this content-free public space. Um, and Newbegin said that this is an attempt to sort of you know almost have no values in that space, but ultimately values creep in. There is still a religious underpinning. Yes. Uh, to secular Western cultures and um, that, you know, the individual, mm. the idea that religion is not to come into the public space. Now, a really interesting, Shadi Hamid wrote a book, um, I think it's called Islamic is- Exceptionalism, where he said this is one of the clashes between Islam and the West because mm. Islam doesn't have this divide between private and public. And mm. um, that's, you know, it's, it's actually a very Western thought to think that religion can just be this private thing, which comes from a particular time in history, German um, liberal Protestantism, where, you know, it sort of retreats into this personal space. Yeah. So even that's a religious, even that's a belief that ultimately the big questions can be solved by Western rationalists in the public space and therefore, religion's allowed if it takes the secondary role to the to the to the the big goal. So you know, all this was re- religious uh, sort of values. But the interesting thing is, I think that when we when we understand that and understand that the secular West is religious, people can. Oh, sorry, the, yeah, the, understand the secular West is religious. That helps us understand why a lot of people are really worried about the rise of secularism. Yeah, and see, oh, the, how's the church going to face in the in the wave of secularism that's coming? But ultimately, I think it helps us understand that it's going to fail and it is failing. And so much of what we see in the culture war, what we see in all these different ideologies that seem to be rising now as politics seemingly becoming almost like a new religion, Mm. all of this is because the secular uh, uh, vision of the West has a religious underpinning and that religious underpinning is failing at this time. Okay, so... Well, we, we've touched on a number of these um, ideologies that are emerging within secularism over the over the, the whole time that we've been chatting um, mm. on Rebuilders. But uh, I wonder if we can maybe do as Newbegin suggests and diagnose our culture yeah. and go yeah. through these ideologies that are emerging within secularism or secular, secular. 
goodness me, what is with our words today? I think you said today? it right, secularism. Did I? Secularism. Yeah. I feel like I missed a, a uh, syllable. syllable in there. Yeah. Thank you. You did, and, but yeah. you corrected, so carry on. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, gatekeeper. Um, all right, so diagnosing culture, uh, this is something that New Begin, you, oh, New Begin suggested that we do. Let's start. Well, can, can I just can I just give it a quick setup that I I, 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 I failed to do? Yep. So there's a bunch of ideologies today. Yep. And all of them, in many ways, I would argue, are responses to one or more failings of our Western secular culture. Okay. And and I would say even not just you know you've got to understand too that that this New Begin argued that the 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 West is the most powerful ideology in the world, and it goes mm-hmm. beyond the West. Um, Western ideals are shaping places like Tokyo, you know, yeah. South Korea, the, you know, Africa. It's the, this, the ideas and content uh, that the West has is going out into the world and interacting with every culture around the world. So all of these different um, uh, ideologies that we're about to talk to mm-hmm. are actually in some sense responses to these failings. Okay, that's helpful. Yeah. Well, let's begin with the first one. Okay, liberalism. Yeah. So liberalism is probably being – the and again too. So this is an important one to just pass out that people hear different things in different parts of the world. In yep. America, liberalism is often equated with the West. In Australia, our Conservative Party is called the Liberal Party. <laughs> um, so that's a little bit confusing for people. But what do, do, I- do you want to know? Just a funny, it's yeah, silly. It. When I was a kid, and I didn't really care much about um, politics or anything. Um, I mean, I cared about things, but not, not politics. politics. <laughs> yeah, um, the way that I would remember what political party was in um, in power at the time. So John Howard was our um, prime, prime minister, minister yeah. and he had very liberal eyebrows and that's how I remembered oh. that he <laughs> <laughs> represented the liberals. Uh, that's all I knew him that- for as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. He, he did have, for anyone who is perhaps listening overseas or not familiar with John Howard, his, his eyebrows were just a whole thing. They oh. Were, oh. were but they? He, but he, obviously there was a point in his – he was a very long prime minister. There was obviously a point in his prime ministership where – Advisors came in and they were tamed. Oh, see, so I'm yeah, yeah, because they were crazy early on, and then they got and then tamed. They, they I'm just looking at a the beast. photo of him now. I think part of it was he was grey, balding and grey, but then had like almost jet black. Yeah, thick the eyebrows, eyebrows had yet yeah. to turn. So really, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really. Sorry, I just saw Well, I, 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 <laughs> I must eat humble pie because I did laugh at him back then at the eyebrows and I noted that when I was younger. But just as I get older, I've noticed that, I don't know, there's just power goes to your eyebrows as you <laughs> get true. older. And, yeah, and right. there's just like, you know, I'm having to tame, you know. My political advisors have come in and told me to, <laughs> to tame tame my eyebrows. You know, it's, it's great. So, okay. So, yeah, anyway, sorry, I digress. Eyebrows. I just no, thought that was, it was. That was fantastic. Yeah, yep. Um, so, Essentially, liberalism, if you could, you know, both in terms of um, left and right, has defined really the last 20, 30 years. So what do I mean by liberalism? I'm talking the belief in free markets, economic growth, individual freedom, Mm. um, that the world is going to move to everyone in the world becoming liberal democracy, democratic Mm -hmm. countries, that the invasion of Iraq, um, one of the justifications for it, um, apart from the weapons of mass destruction, is that Iraq could become a liberal democracy. Yeah. So this has been very much the sort of defying, uh, uh, defining, um, ideology in the world and in many ways this is behind consumerism, individualism and uh, Francis Fukuyama talked of sort of this desire to have a content-free political ideology. So the idea was that the world had gotten into problems in the 20th century because it was too 
religious, if you like, okay. and too totalitarian and too passionate about politics. So let's just have this politics where um, we just have this freedom in the market in places. We don't get yeah. too excited about politics and the world's just going to become a better place slowly. And I think that this is still powerful in the world. Yeah. Um, and in many ways, if you look at, you know, some of the language around the pandemic, you know, often people who are like, let's get the economy back on track. Let's get back to normal. Let's get back to 2019. That's very much the sort of liberal approach to mm. this moment. Okay. So with that in mind, as we as we go through uh, diagnosing the culture, mm. um, we're going to ask a few questions of these ideologies. Yeah. So uh, can I frame them up yeah, for yeah. us before we dig into them for liberalism? We're going to ask what is the sin or sin of yes. liberalism yeah. um, or what does it perceive as the sin yes, of yes. the culture? Yes. Yeah. Um, what is redemption and then what is worshipped? So when yes. we look at liberalism, we're asking what does it see as the sin of the culture and what is it aiming to fix? Mm. What is the redemption? So what is the way that mm. it's going to bring, you know. Salvation. Really. Salvation, yes. Yeah. yeah, great. I mean, not great, but. Mm. And then what is what is worshipped? Yeah. What does liberalism herald as mm. the the almighty thing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and, and these are really helpful questions that people can apply outside of just these solutions. Yes. You, know, you can ask yes. this about your city. You can ask this about perhaps other ideologies we don't talk about today, your nationality, your region, whatever, mm. your culture. Yeah. Um, so really with liberalism, you know, I think the big problem it sees with the world is a lack of material goods. Um, so it, it sees that, you know, one of the big problems in the world is um, uh, that people have a live in poverty and they mm. need their, you know, material goods. Is there tr some truth in that? Yes. Going yeah. back to uh, what we did two weeks ago, there's a biblical yes and a no. Yes. Um, and so, you know, part of the yes to this is, yes, poverty is a terrible thing if you live yeah. in it. Mm. Um, and people can be, um, you know, lives improved as they their material circumstances are improved. Yeah. But when this then becomes sort of a goal or the primary reason that you see sin in the world, the answer then is to give people more stuff allow them to have more consumer choice, allow them to, you know, do these things. And we start to see now the redemption. Mm. So the redemption really is the market to just grow and be free. Yep. People to have more stuff, more individual freedom, more consumer choice to be able to sort of self-create. Um, and in some ways, part of this is also it sees in the sin that part of the problem was it was reacting to what happened in the 20th century, Nazism, communism, mm. societies turned upside down, fighting in the streets. So it's also part of the solution is if you give people more stuff, they're not going to want to get too religious or too political. Yeah, okay. Um, and um, so, yeah. And ultimately the question, what is being worshipped? It's money, mammon, um, mm -hmm. the god of money. Uh, and in many ways, I think it's also the self. Yeah. So this enshrines the self and I would say a form of the self, the consumer self-creating self who – you know, in this vision, yeah, just wants to get back to their life where we could just travel anywhere in the world, do what the heck we want anytime. That's the liberal vision. The world is there to be your mall. Yes. Yeah. And so you, there's no need for anything outside yourself because exactly. you can keep buying all you need to fulfill yourself. Yes, and yes. Yeah. Good times, apparently, yes. but potentially not. Uh, so should we move on? Yeah. To another one? Critical theory. Yes. Oh, the great buzzword at the, the moment. The buzzword of the moment. So in many ways, critical theory, we could see some, some of the ones that come after this uh, responding to what people see are the failures of liberalism. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, critical theory is obviously something that's become more popular. It comes out of a bunch of um, – we 
done podcasts on this before, but just to yes. catch everyone up, you know, it's a it's a it's a set of responses, a critique, if you like, yeah, of really in many ways how the West worked. Mm-hmm. And so its question is, what is sin? It would then say, sin is oppressive thoughts, oppressive hidden forms of power. Um, liberalism comes and gives freedom to people, mm. but then one of the questions is, well, why does injustice and why does oppression and why does prejudice still continue? Yeah, when legislation has been made that people can be free. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you know there were laws like in apartheid South Africa or in Australia, you know, with Indigenous people or in the United States with um, African American people, once those laws are gone. But then injustice still continues. Why is that so? Yes. Um, so, you know, part of this is that, therefore, that what there is is there's hidden sources of power. Um, and in a sense, the majority has created a hidden system of power um, that still continues to linger even within a liberal democratic state. Yeah. So this could be the patriarchy or this could be, um, you know, racism. And these forms mm-hmm. still exist there systematically. Now, what's really interesting is that you know, people talk about structural oppression, um, which, yes, There are elements there, but interestingly, it doesn't so much look at structure. So, for example, housing, um, or it doesn't look at um, school zoning as much as it looks at more attitudes that people have. Yes, Um, yes. You know, again, there's different different levels of how people buy into this. Yeah. So, redemption then naturally that would flow on. That redemption is the defeat of that locus of oppression within Mm -hmm. the culture. So that structures and thoughts and systems and ways of thinking that actually then oppress people when they are destroyed and undermined. Therefore, in a sense, that's what is sort of redemption. And Herbert Marcuse, who was one of the sort of critical theorists, you know, he talked about um, the sort of minority then gaining rule over the majority. Um, So you see that now, that desire to, in a a campaign, a fashion show, a show uh, instead of in the past that was to have these super beautiful you know, people who, you know, not many people look like them, now to have a much wider variety where you have minority, different, you know, minorities and to, to continually sort of find new minorities as well. Yeah, okay. Um, so in a sense, what's then worship? It's really hard because in some sense, uh, critical theory is, uh, in a sense, it's an anti, it's it's a, it's a it's critical by its very nature. So it's coming against something. Yes. But I still think there's elements of, of what's worshipped. Often the experience of the oppressed is worshipped and held up as the defining thing for everything. Yeah. And in some ways I would say the sort of minority. But part of what happens is, again, this ends up at a different kind of individualization, not like liberalism, but it just continues this continual fracturing. I remember, I remember reading about this one particular conference in the United States, and I think it was a feminist conference, And they sort of broke people up into different minority groups to treat those minorities, you know, like according to this sort of thought and, and, but it just kept going and it went for like two days or something. And it kept going to the point of, you know, and there were groups like people who experienced hay fever. Um, and it just, you know, it sort of been in that group. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But then we'd be split up further. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the idea that we wouldn't have ended up in the same group anyway. I wouldn't have thought. No, yeah. I probably would have. I would have put you in that group. No, no, I don't know. <laughs> same um, birth date. Yeah, yeah. Same birth date. Uh, hay fever, addicted to uh, pastries. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, you know, that's essentially, um, uh, yeah, really, you know, I guess the, 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 the religious ideas behind that concept. Okay. Well, moving from there to nationalism. Yeah. So, and to these two very much, you know, a lot in the news, we had a lot of people ask us about nationalism. We have, yeah. And one of the things that's happened is, um, you know, critical theory, I think came up, you know, it's been around for ages, 
but really came sort of into the public imagination, particularly in the sort of cultural, particularly in the US, but also other places. Yeah. Um, and some of the response to being that has then this sort of this backlash, conservative backlash, as yeah. people sort of almost have in reaction, you know, gone in the opposite direction. And that's one thing to remember. One of the great sort of rules is um, – you I said this continual rebuilders will continue to say it. if you're worried about critical theory, the danger for you is the less that you're going to wake up tomorrow as an extreme critical theorist, but you're going to wake up further down the road of a reaction against yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if, if you're a liberal and like the first vision of things going back to normal and the world is a mall, um, again, you're not going to wake up a nationalist necessarily tomorrow, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So nationalism in some sense um, is this reaction where the scope of seeing the world in liberalism of mm. globalization as yes. this place of freedom where you can move around similar, but it's just not a smaller scope. It's the nation. Yeah. Okay. Um, and in many ways it, it sort of holds up the values of a particular place of geography, its culture, its people, some forms of nationalism are tied to race. Others are not. Um, but it's really, it's sin is foreignness. Yeah. Okay. It locates in outside of the nation. It's about um, those outside of the nation putting pressure upon the nation. And you see this, you know, you may see a country like Poland who has had a history of oppression, mm -hmm. um, you know, from a bigger country like Russia being next to it. But most of those stories then are told around the people who came from outside in and actually caused the problems. Yeah, okay. Um, and so then sometimes sin will be still located within the nation, but it's those who are treasonous. You know, there's the term of fifth column. Yeah, okay. Um, and you look at Jewish people's history in Europe and other places continually suffering from this. There was a sense that um, they were seen as others even when they were part of the nation. Yeah, yeah. You know, you look at what happened in Nazi Germany. You had Jews have been there for centuries and centuries, who'd, many of whom had converted to Christianity, had taken on German names, many of whom were super nationalistic, had fought in World War One. Yes. Um, but this, this, this na when nationalism arises, there's this deep drive to find who are those who are not living according to the national goals, um, you know, and, and to tie that into the story and culture of that nation. Mm. And so a lot of nationalism as emerges, particularly sort of in the 19th and 18th centuries, really was a reaction to the sort of rise of liberalism and capitalism within in Europe. Um, and you had this thing that in a lot of the major capitals of Europe, like Budapest and these different places, there were a lot of traders. So you had a you know, Jewish population, German population, French, English, Dutch. Mm. And often it was then people in the countryside who may you know, speak Latvian or Polish or Lithuanian. Yeah. And so there was this move to almost push back on the rise of capitalism and what was seen as cosmopolitanism and get back to this sort of like the true, you know, the, and all these language comes up around the people, the Volk, the folk, mm. or, yes. you know, soil, blood and soil. Yeah. Um, you know, and you see that there's this almost religious understanding of the land and people's blood and all this yeah, sort of yeah. stuff. So, you know. Very much linked to identity. Very much listened to, linked to identity. So, and sort of the fear was that, cosmopolitanism and globalization and capitalism would rob us of our identity because mm. we move from where we grew up to the city and we can reinvent ourselves and anyone can get ahead, um, yeah, yeah. you know, and um, someone who's poor can make a lot of money and find themselves in the upper class. So you see this interesting reaction against it from the upper class mm. and even interesting early British conservatism or Toryism wasn't necessarily pro-market because they were actually resentful of people who had made a bunch of money from the lower classes. You know, yeah, okay. these terms like the nouveau riche, you know, yes. they'd look down on them. And then you also had it coming up from the ground, 
ground as well from the working class. So it comes from two, two sides. Um, but really, re redemption then is patriotism. But you get this fascinating sort of Christianized, almost sacrifice of self in war mm. and um, worship of the military and yeah. those who sacrifice for the country, spilt blood for the fatherland, the motherland. Um, and yeah, it's this interesting way that that sort of weaves into this redemptive myth that um, you know, some have called it the myth of redemptive violence, that uh, when we spill blood, our blood on the land, that almost it's, has these echoes of, um, or spill our blood maybe in a foreign land for our yeah. um, uh, in a country that it, it, it's almost this form of atonement, mm. what we see on the cross. Mm. Yes, yeah, so it has all these theological characteristics. And what happens is, you know, what's worshipped, it's the nation. Yeah. And, you know, all different countries have them. You know, it could be Night of the Proms in Royal Albert Hall in England. And it could be, you know, America, you walk around Washington, D.C., France, you know, all these things around the revolution in Paris. Um, you know, it can be Australia, you see the Anzac myth mm. um, in different places and in New Zealand as well. Uh, lots of different countries have this concept of, uh, civil religion, these ceremonies which look religious but aren't. Yes. Or have maybe part religion, part the state. I find it interesting that um, nationalism is is still so enduring in an mm. um, increasingly globalised mm. world. And I wonder, um, particularly in reference to what we talked about last week with the metaverse, what, mm. what will nationalism potentially look like when that space emerges yeah. more. Will will it still look the same? Will it yeah. take on a new kind of thing? I don't know. This is just well, thoughts I'm having out loud. I think we're seeing that because, you know, increasingly China is behind a firewall. There is a Chinese internet. Yes. And you'll have people in Melbourne who live on the Chinese internet, which is really fascinating. Yeah. So, like, you've got people who may order an Uber, but there's other people who order a DD. There may be yeah. people who buy stuff on Amazon, other people who order stuff on um, Alibaba, some people who go on, go on Twitter, others who go on Weibo. Um, you know, there's a Russian language sort of internet, you know, th there's a Portuguese, Brazilian, you know, like, so there's, there's interesting that there's language based around the internet, but mm. also that there, I think there will be actually separate internets and separate metaverses that will reflect national, mm. you know, ideas, you know, cause you think, you know, uh, you know, it, how will Eastern Europe, you know, the Russian speaking internet has effect there and in the yeah. Orthodox countries. So I think we're going to see it uh, definitely play out. And then interesting, even how the internet um, has driven and this thing of driven these different, so even the nation can split down. So you're seeing like yeah, in yeah, the US, yeah. like, you know, I just saw there's someone's proposing new California, which is California <laughs> without San Francisco and LA. Um, oh, right there's on. even now on Twitter now, there's the Victorian independence movement. Is, which is fascinating, is now sort of growing. You get hats now, Victorian independence for our state here in Victoria because there's this frustration they feel like hard done by by the rest of Australia um, in politics, you know, uh, Cape Town in South Africa arguing about, you know, there's people who want to break away from the rest of South Africa. All across the world you're seeing this movement. So it's fascinating that we're seeing this thing of like these big sweeps like the metaverse, globalisation, at the same time nationalism and regionalism. Yeah, two again, why? Responses against... Um, the failings of secularism. Yeah. And you know, Pope John Paul II wrote an interesting book and he talked about there's still like just as we have an affinity to our family, you have an mm -hmm. affinity to your nation, where you're from, your region. You know, and that's again, there's a yes in that. You know, I am totally Australian and and 
you know, I'll be in California and I'll see a gum tree and it's like, oh, you know, you have yeah, this because yeah. we're connected to the land in, in some ways and um, to the culture and everything. And so there's an element where there's a yes, that's actually okay. Yes. And scripture does talk about the different cultures and nations of the world bringing their treasures to the kingdom, yeah. to the city of God. Um, but again, to the no is when that becomes an end in itself, when that's mm. trying to play the role of what only God and Christianity can do. Yeah. Oh, Interesting. Um, utilitarianism. It's a really interesting one and mm. it's probably one that um, I think is particularly relevant for us here in Australia and New Zealand but yeah, in okay. other places around the world. And one thing you'll notice is, uh, you know, I've talked about before that, you know, Australia's New Zealand response to the pandemic has seen people in the US and parts <laughs> yeah. of Europe like, what on earth is going on there? And, you know, often the comparison is, oh, it's, it's communism, socialism. Mm. But really what people often fail to understand is that in sort of Anglo-American thought or particularly Anglo-British philosophy and political science, yeah. you've got these two wings. And one is the story that's told by people like John Locke and Thomas Paine, which is the idea that before government, before civilization, people lived in this state of freedom, in this natural state, and they had these inalienable natural rights. Yeah. And so when government comes along, therefore, the government is there to do certain things, but also it's to protect those rights. Mm -hmm. And if there's too much government, it's going to impinge on those natural rights. That's very much the American story um, that's enshrined in, you know, the Constitution. And John Locke, yeah. you know, writing around that time influences, um, you know, that sort of thought and so on. And so when people look at something like Australia, they're like, oh, my goodness, they're taking away their freedom. It's not the government's role to take away people's natural freedom. But then later on, about 100 years later, particularly as Australia and New Zealand is more formed, there's another thinker who's really influential. Mm -hmm. There's people like John Stuart Mill, but there's also Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham was a, a philosopher, and he's one of the, the sort of fathers of this thought called utilitarianism. Mm. His thought is it's not about individual rights. So it's not about an individual having their rights. It's actually about the majority experiencing the most pleasure. Okay. And there doesn't exist this perfect time before civilization where people had natural rights. The creation of government actually guarantees your rights. Yeah. And so government is not here to take away your freedom. Government actually gives you freedom. And Bentham, um, you, know, um, you know, was someone who, you know, was not religious, um, looked at animal rights, looked at things like, um, you know, the ability of people to – you know, not have to be married. And a lot of his stuff, you know, in terms of sexual rights and, you know, all, you know, all the stuff that you see today, he was, in a sense, in many ways, um, you know, quite an early adopter with a lot of those thoughts. And so it's a very different way of looking at things where government's not bad and government's not here to take away your individualism. Government is here to ensure your individualism and your yeah. individual freedom. And so this is where you see this, this, um, you know, different understanding. It's more about the greatest good versus individual rights. Mm -hmm. So this is why you see in Australia and New Zealand this very different response to the pandemic where the pandemic comes and people's fear, say, in the US is, oh, the government's going to come and they're going to overreach and they're going to make us have masks and vaccine mandates. Vaccine mandates? Vaccine well, we're doing mandates. well today. <laughs> yeah, what's going on? This is, we didn't have pastries. Yeah. Like, it's just a disaster. Uh, I'm fine over here. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. All right, very pastry articulate. Man. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so the, the fear is the government is going to come in and overreach. Now, in Australia, the vast majority of the population is more, we want the government to control the pandemic. We want minimum deaths. We want a, a super effective vaccine rollout. We want to be protected from this bad thing because um, 
in a utilitarian framework, you have an expectation of high competency from the government. The government gives you your rights. The government ensures, um, you know, a good life. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. Um, there's a book. I can't remember if I mentioned this recently on the podcast, but there's a book written by the New York Times bureau chief, uh, Sydney. American who came to Sydney and lived here and he's reflecting on the difference between Australian and American culture. And he says, Americans want to be great. Australians want a great life. Mm. And I thought that sums up this differentiation yeah. here. So in a sense in America, it's the government's role to get out of the way and enable you to become great. Yes. In Australia, the government is going to guarantee you a great life. So I want, I want to have a house with two kids and a backyard and barbecues with my mates and be able to go to the football and go to the beach when I want and go on an overseas holiday and drive a car and, and do what the heck I want. But it's actually the government who's going to make that happen. Yes. Where in America it's more seen the government's going to come and tax me and take that away. Well, we'll be more happy to pay taxes because – and there's some similarities here to um, Scandinavia and so mm -hmm. on. So not often named. Yeah. But – really key. And Stanley Howarass, uh, the theologian, was the person who helped me sort of understand that difference, not personally, but reading something he wrote where, you know, he talked about Jeremy Bentham. Interestingly for you, Daniel, uh, Jeremy Bentham wanted to come to uh, South Australia and set up a, mm. a, a sort of like utilitarian um, uh Utopian community, if you like, <laughs> in the colony, which he, is he interesting. Did. He did. <laughs> well, it was, it yeah. was your down, home. Yeah, it was my, 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 <laughs> your house. house. Yeah, yeah. I was the ruler. <laughs> yes. So it, it's interesting, in again, to just to, to pull it. So Australians will go look at the individuals who are letting everyone down and get frustrated them that they're ruining everyone else's, you know, lifestyle. Yes. It, it's really interesting. <laughs> so, again, looking at this through the, um, the lens of a critique, um, a biblical critique, is what is sin? Well, sin in utilitarianism is incompetency, incompetent yeah. government. When the government can't give you this great lifestyle um, and and Bentham saw that really almost sin, because he got rid of religion, almost sin what it was was bad feelings when yeah. lots of people are having bad experiences. So again, too, the pandemic comes and Australia does these things like lockdown, locks out people and was willing to lock out Australians overseas. I remember the prime minister was like, Aussies overseas, you got you got a few weeks to get back because we're going to lock this thing down. Yeah. Um, because it's like, well, we're willing for a minority to pay the price for the majority to have pleasurable feelings. You look yeah. at Western Australia, our state, which has locked itself off and is willing to be locked down well into 2022. And the leader is extremely popular because the, the people are going, well, we want to be protected from the bad thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, corona. Um, so sin, in a sense, is bad feelings, bad things. And we hate it when the government is incompetent or doesn't have a plan. Um, so you look at our country, we've had one of the most successful vaccine rollouts in the world. We're about to hit 94% or something in our state. We could get to 94% as a nation. Canberra is 100% vaccinated now, mm. our city. And people are still complaining that it wasn't done super efficiently. Um, so that's a classic example of utilitarianism. What's redemption, competency, uh, and the government creating an environment and the community that we can all enjoy ourselves. Yeah. Competency is a great barbecue where everyone brings all the right stuff and, mm. oh, the weather's great. How good is this, mate? Yeah. Good. Look at the weather. Clean beaches, Clean roads beaches. that don't have potholes in exactly. them. Exactly. This, this is why you, you see this high level of transformation of public spaces in Australia because that's what you want. Beautiful parks, football, running smoothly. got in, had my beer. It's all great. That, that's – that's what redemption is in this. Mm. It's just, the, the great lifestyle. Go just on. quickly, just going back to the what of the sin, you talked about incompetency with the government. Is that also true of, of thinking about each other? 
of, yes. of society in general? Yes. I think so. So there's this element that I think in – yeah, um, you, you look at the person who's ruining it for everyone. So the person who comes on a train has got their radio on loud. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my it's goodness. Like, pull your head in, mate, is yeah, the Australian yeah. thing. You know, okay. where in other countries it might be that person's got their individual freedom, look what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. You have this weird thing in Australia where – you know, and people, again, too, I remember the footage of the guy in Sydney who – was COVID, had COVID and in the Sydney lockdown, he was like, went on the run and overseas, he was on Fox News and people were like, this is terrible. This man is, you know, being told by the government to lock down and they're chasing him. Look at the individual rights of this guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. In Australia, it was like, get that guy. <laughs> like, and when he was arrested, it was literally like all the people in the apartments came into the street and applauded because mm. it's like, mate, you're ruining it for us. Yeah. We're willing to do lockdown. Um, because we can see on the other side of this barbecues. And you'll see how government's talking now. It's <laughs> not like barbecues. It's true. It's, it's literally like, you know, it's like, oh, we have the Melbourne Cup and Christmas is going to be awesome and you'll be back at the beach and holidays. You know, this is Australian sort of New Zealand. I don't think New Zealand as well um, mm. sort of way of looking at things. So what's worshipped? Pleasure. Yeah. And good barbecues. times. Yeah, good feelings, good times. Yeah. Good yeah. vibes. That's Australia. Totally. Um, you know, I think of the Men in Clark thing, you know, the Australians sort of barbecue, he had some line about, you know, Australia's sort of, uh, you know, barbecue on the beach waiting for the apocalypse <laughs> sort of thing, you know. Mm. Um, yeah. And a lot of it, like, it feels very nostalgic. Like you think back to your childhood, you, I know, Christmas with the family and like there's just yeah. a lot of nostalgia around like those, I don't know, those time barbecue summer beaches yeah. Yeah. and kind of a, uh, a bit of a harken back to those the good old days. Let's bring that bring that now. Well, well, look at look at us in the podcast. I'm going to critique <laughs> us, you know. But you look in Melbourne. What do we do? We get together. We have food. Yeah. We yep. talk about the food. We have you know you muck around your jokes. Everyone feeling good. We've had you know jokes mm. where you know mm. listen to podcasts from other countries. Like okay, today we're doing this. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> you know, um, where we're like, oh, we've got a paste. We've got our coffees. How are you feeling, guys? Have a bit of a laugh. Good vibes. All right, let's get into That's, it. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there you go. Rest of the world, we're critiquing ourselves in real time. <laughs> I'll reflect on that later. Mm. Um, are you ready to move on to? Where are we one? having lunch? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We yes, haven't talked about on. that. I'm yeah, a yeah. bit hungry. Um, yeah. Libertarianism. Yes. Okay. So this is a huge one in the world and yeah. um, growing. And again, you could describe libertarianism as liberalism, but more extreme. Yeah. Okay. So libertarianism is often associated with the thinker Ayn Rand, who um, uh, was a emigre slash refugee from the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. from a family in um, St. Petersburg, comes to America and almost goes in the opposite direction where this is what we were talking about before but in extreme. Yeah. It's not that everyone – so liberalism might say, hey, we want to have this equitable thing where everyone um, is able to have their natural rights. Yep. Libertarianism is more like we want those who are naturally more gifted, naturally more entrepreneurial, to be able to do their thing – and not be encumbered by the state, but also not be encumbered by the weak. Yeah, okay. So, you know, uh, Ayn Rand, um, you know, famously talked against altruism and care of other people. Mm. So where liberalism might go, yeah, we want to have the markets, but we also want some welfare here just to protect those who could be vulnerable. Libertarianism would see that as bad. Any regulation is bad. And sort of, you know, Ayn Rand 
communicated her philosophy. She had a circle in New York, which included the former uh, head of the US Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, probably one of the most influential economists um, or someone with their hands on the levers of the economy in the last sort of 20, 30 years. Um, and, but she also did these novels and um, you know, Atlas Shrugged, The Fountainhead. Um, and in that, you know, there's this idea of that, this, this thing, this guy, John Galt, who disappears and goes off and leaves society. What would happen if the most talented amongst us got sick of being, you know, regulated and held back by the masses and just went off and he, like all the best people in the world go to Galt's Gulch. It's this mm-hmm. wonderful place out mm. there somewhere where they can do their thing. Now, really interesting, this is a hugely influential uh, philosophy in America. Again, this clashes very much with utilitarianism. And this yeah. is why, um, you know, you don't see many copies of Ayn Rand in Australia and New Zealand. I would not really heard of her until I went to America and almost every bookstore had, had it there. And, um, uh, you know, essentially it's this idea that also is very foundational to Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. If you think about the vision mm-hmm. of Silicon Valley, uh, it's on the Western frontier. San Francisco had the 60s revolution. So it's, it's, the sort of soil that Silicon Valley exists upon is sort of three things. It's the sort of hippie utopianism of the 60s that happened in Haight-Ashbury uh, in California. Secondly, it's sort of Ayn Rand, yeah, um, yeah. extreme libertarianism, extreme capitalism, and then technological um, innovation and advance. Yeah. And you see this. So the metaverse could be argued as sort of a libertarian frontier. Mm. Um, you know, these ideas of the sort of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Peter Thiel and Mark Zuckerberg, these characters, they're very much like sort of Ayn Rand, John Galt's characters. They've gone off and, um, you know, there's even been people suggest, you know, that California should secede from the rest of the United States and just be its own thing. Or you look at Elon Musk's dream to go to Mars and create mm. sort of this new civilization yeah. there. All of this is actually really libertarianism. Um, and, you know, what's the difference is libertarian, It's re- there's this really interesting moment and one of the stories about conservatism. You have an older conservatism, which is more about, you know, how do we protect the nuclear family? How do we sort of have sexual morals and personal responsibility? And, um, you know, how do we sort of have keep religion and all that sort of stuff? Really interesting. You've got this uneasy truce between that sort of social conservatism and libertarianism. So really, if you look at something like the Republican Party in the US, and mm. you could even argue the Conservative Party in the UK, the ascendant force is libertarian in the midst of a party which is sometimes more socially conservative. Yeah, okay. And so libertarians are different to conservatives in the sense that they're often, um, you know, not all of them, but many are anti-religion. And Ayn Rand was very an, a strong atheist. Mm. Um, but then also like whereas the social conservative might want to ban pornography or ban abortion, the libertarians like just don't ban anything, you know, le- legalise drugs, legalise everything. So there's this really interesting moment that almost what you're seeing with the Republican Party and a figure like Donald Trump is, Donald Trump is naturally almost more a libertarian more than he is a social conservative if you look at his mm-hmm. life. He may some, say some of the talking points. So really what you're seeing around the world is the emergence of libertarianism and I would say a sort of populist libertarianism, mm-hmm. one of the most influential political thinkers in the world um, and I, I say that that's a caveat about 12 times that is Joe Rogan and I'm not saying he's a good political thinker <laughs> but his sort of populist everyman kind of libertarianism is super influential in the world mm. super influential and um, you know you're seeing what's happening is I think there's a lot of people who formerly would have seen themselves on the left or seen themselves as liberals who are reacting to what they see now as the authoritarian tone of some 
you know, uh, elements of the culture where critical theory has taken hold and are now mm-hmm. swinging to not conservatism per se, or they might start to call themselves conservatives, but really libertarianism. Mm-hmm. And so it's this reaction against any kind of authoritarianism of left or right. It is hugely influential. So one of the sort of real tells around libertarianism is the word freedom and, you know, people asking for freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's fascinating about, again, we've just sort of set out the sort of utilitarianism of Australia and New Zealand. I heard a really interesting sort of little um, podcast by a guy from Canada, and he talked about, I think, you know, Canada has elements of utilitarianism and other different cultural and political streams than uh, the United States. But what he's saying is he got sort of 80, 90% of Canada who still is very trusting of the government, you know, has that viewpoint, that sort of utilitarian viewpoint. But then you got this 10% who are more influenced by the United States through social media, through the internet, and not just the United States, but the libertarian wing of the United States. Mm -hmm. That's what you're seeing in Australia. This is why in Australia, um, at the protests currently happening in our city, at the protests happening in places like Wellington in New Zealand, you've got people with Trump flags and you've got sort of a very energized libertarianism that is moving around the world in Scandinavia, which is very anti, um, you know, libertarian in terms of it's got its classic sort of social democracy. Uh, You've got young entrepreneurs who are like reading Ayn Rand as sort of this pushback against the sort of Yantelor culture um, that they live in. So libertarianism. Okay, so what is sin? Restraints outside of the individual that are restraining the individual. Regulation. And I would say the non-performing, the non-elite, the yes. weak, um, yeah. very much so. Anyone telling you what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what is redemption? Well, redemption is freedom from restraints and regulation. Mm. Again, talked before about Isaiah Berlin has two concepts of freedom, freedom from, if you like, and freedom to. So it could be I want freedom from – I'm in North Korea. I want freedom from the regime putting me in prison. Um, mm-hmm. versus freedom two is, well, I want to walk around town dressed as a armadillo and fire a water pistol at people. Okay. Yeah. Well, that no, literally just came from my subconscious right? that um, was, just then. That was um, a beautiful moment. Can see, someone see, please illustrate that? Yes. Thanks. Oh, send, send, it, yes. send um, it through. <laughs> uh, I don't think no, – don't, don't, don't. I'm going to get utilitarian on you. Uh, don't, please. Um, so, An armadillo <laughs> with a water pistol. Well, me is an armadillo with a water pistol. Oh, no, I'm imagining a water, a, a, a real armadillo. Oh, I, was, I was going Mark's. With Mark's face on it. <laughs> with yeah. Mark's face. Hey, it's my, it's my illustration. I'll, I'll, I'll cry if I want to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so in a sense it's this this escape from others. Also freedom too. So you think about like Burning Man Festival is a classic example of this sort of like we're just going to go out in the desert and do what the heck we want yeah. um, sort of thing. Uh, and – what is worshipped? Well, um, freedom in the self. Yeah, um, okay. But freedom goes from something of freedom from to a license to do whatever. Yeah, So yeah, freedom yeah, becomes it. the God, um, which is yeah, really interesting. Ooh. Well, this next one and the last one um, is, is more of an emerging one, right? Yeah. Uh, so you, you've called it conspiracy theorism. Is that a, yeah. a title that you've come up with yourself? I just came up just, with that this morning. Yeah, great. Yeah. Hadn't had yeah. a pastry. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I feel like there's this really – conspiracy theories have been around for a while mm. and there has been different levels of conspiracy theory. Um, so in a sense you may have the kind of conspiracy theory um, where people go, look, ah, man um, – uh, the shooting of JFK. Yep. You know, 
was it was it really just Lee Harvey Oswald acting as a lone wolf? It may be about one particular incident. Mm-hmm. The sort of uh, Ameri- oh, his Canadian uh, journalist written a lot about conspiracy theories, Peter Dalscott, has this concept what he calls the parapolitical, which is more the idea that um, there are certain, uh, you know, particularly intelligence agencies which will do stuff that we don't find out two years later. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of this idea that there's parts of the political sphere that we don't know about. Deals done, you know. Did Australia and Indonesia sign an oil deal behind East Timor's back, Timor-Leste? Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of stuff. So um, it's a mistrust of the political system. And, you know, so he would look at the Lee Harvey Oswald thing and I think his theory is Lee Harvey Oswald may have shot him, but there was actually something else going on where the CIA was trying to flush out this spy and sent Lee Harvey Oswald to, um, you know, Russia as this agent and that's why they're covering up. It's less because there's this massive conspiracy as there's something that certain mm-hmm. people want to hide. There's that sort of yeah. concept. Um, But what we're seeing is this new kind of almost, I would say, religion of conspiracy theorism emerging. And it's got a number of influences, but it's increasingly taking on a kind of religious form. I think QAnon has been Mm. an example of this. Um, So, for example, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, um, what's happened in the QAnon world is that um, uh, obviously there was a lot of prophecies and stuff around Trump being re-inaugurated into power mm-hmm. um, hasn't happened and it's gone into really interesting and slightly strange places. So one of the theories from QAnon was that uh, John F. Kennedy Jr., uh, John F. Kennedy's son, was mm. actually going to re-emerge. Um, he died in a plane crash um, yep. with his, I think, fiancé at the time. Uh, I can't remember if they were married or not. Um, and they were these, you know, high society sort of figures uh, – as Seinfeld fans, he appears uh, <laughs> yep. in, in a couple of episodes, or this one where Elaine has this crush on him. Um, and so it's this belief that he was going to appear and be Trump's running mate. So that was running during this sort of election. But what's happened since then is a couple of weeks ago, there was this Q prophecy, not from Q, but Q stopped posting. So it's sort of like taking on this self-fulfilling form where people put something into this sort of online open source conspiracy movement that actually John F. Kennedy Jr. was going to reappear at Dealey Plaza, the exact place where John F. Kennedy was shot in Dallas, Texas, and it would almost be this appearance of this messianic figure. He yeah. was he was actually, and some went as far to say he will not just become the president of America. So Trump's almost become, starting to become peripheral in the QAnon movement, that he would then become the king or something, the president or king of like Australia, Canada, United Kingdom, America. And hmm. literally thousands of people turned up. And they were lining the streets and they started mm. counting down till midday and then did the Pledge of Allegiance at midday, hoping for this messianic figure to appear. And so some of this stuff you see, and particularly some of the QAnon stuff around this satanic cabal of pedophiles, um, we've had some quite disturbing scenes here in our state in Victoria where um, out the front of parliament there was a gallows appear twice. Part of that is links back to this QAnon idea that um, when the storm comes, which is almost this moment of reckoning, mm. this apocalyptic day, that actually the evil, satanic, pedophilic elites of the world will be hung. And the justice, you know, the Trump or whoever, John F. Kennedy Jr., whatever figures that you believe in will hang these people. Mm. Now, what's really interesting is QAnon's this movement, but you're seeing the filtering down of these ideas. So often what you have in something like this is there's the full-on believers and it's big. When we have spoken about QAnon on the podcast, we've had people, even in places like Australia and others who have emailed us and have family members who have fully 
you know, yep. become enveloped in this. So this is very real. There are Christian leaders who have been influenced by this and it's gone into churches and so on. Um, but you're almost seeing now this sort of like emerging political force so that in New Zealand, um, you know, when they had the process the other day, you have that influence there. And, um, you know, it's going global. In Japan, there was marches, you know, to reinstate the um, former sacked chief of American intelligence, Michael Flynn. Um, so you're seeing this sort of mashup of a few things. I would say it's libertarianism. There's some radical libertarianism there. There's yep. also some social conservatism in there. Mm -hmm. There's also some apocalyptic um, religious belief. Yeah. That's been true of some Christian belief. We've seen there's now Q evangelicals, they call them. Evangelicals hmm. affected by Q. So like end times kind end of time stuff. End times stuff. Yeah. Um, there's also fusions that we're seeing uh, amongst, globally amongst the Persian community where mm -hmm. you've seen this sort of mix up of um, some sort of Persian thought and even Shia thought and some of this sort of stuff. So again, mm -hmm. some of the apocalyptic stuff about the Mahdi coming back and Q and so on. Um, and then you've sort of also got this um, sort of nationalism mixed up in it. So this something new is brewing around the world, whether it's a process you see in Germany, some of the sovereign citizen stuff you've seen in, in America, but also now seeing in Australia, New Zealand, places like Germany and the, um, uh, I forgot what they call them, Freeburgers, Reichsburgers, I think they call them. Um, so really interesting. That's gotten into anti-vaccine stuff and mm -hmm. so on. So the anti-vaxxer thing as well. Now, as much as that's a sort of... Um, more marginal thing, it's getting bigger, but it's it's going down to cultures. Even statements like do your own research, um, you hear people saying now that's actually from the American conspiracy theorist William Cooper who was killed by the FBI in a raid on his compound. So this idea that really to, to sort of take it apart, what is sin? An evil elite. There is an evil elite who controls everything in the world mm -hmm. and it's a cabal and they're really the, the hands moving sovereignly behind everything happening in the world. So, again, this is a religious dimension of explaining the world. Mm. What is redemption? Well, freedom from restraints and regulation and the defeat of the evil elite. So there will be this apocalyptic day of the Lord, if you like, to use the biblical language, coming where the apocalyptic uh, reveals the workings. And, again, to apocalypse is revealing. Yeah, okay. The, the, the term in the Greek. So we'll see the corrupt, you know, the swamp drain, the swamp will be drained. The corrupt leaders at the head of the Vatican and the UN and the World Bank and the US and Australia, whatever, the royal family, they'll be re revealed for the sort of pedophiles and Satans that they really are. Mm. Um, and so it's 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 a almost a secularized civil religion kind of end times theology, as you're right to point out. Yeah. Um, and spiritual warfare. Really mm. interesting, sort of this mainstream spiritual warfare. I mean, I saw a video the other day of this woman in a school meeting in California, I think it was, and she um, you know, took her this school board about they wanted to bring in masks and she's like, I, I know what you are, you're demons, you're spiritual demons. Yeah, yeah. But then she just went off tap and is like dropping F-bombs. And <laughs> you know, I was like, I recognize that spiritual warfare language, but it's sort of done by people who may not be regularly attending a church. Yeah. Um, and what's worship? What's a mashup of stuff? It's the nationalism, sort of different faiths in there, libertarianism, the new age movement, veganism. Mm -hmm. This is all sort of wellness movements all coming in there. Um, so, yeah, that's my series of, of contemporary ideologies. The diagnosing of the culture. Um, yeah, that, that was a mammoth effort. I know. I yeah. Know. I know. Um, so I guess, I guess what... Um, you've endeavoured to do through that is is uh, demonstrate how to how to diagnose culture, how mm. to go through mm. and look at um, these ideologies through a biblical framework. Yes. Um, yeah, and and what I'd encourage people to do is 
you don't even have to go and rote, like repeat them. This is more a learning. Yes. Um, instead yeah, of this yeah, is yeah. content to go and repeat them in your next sermon. But look where you are. You're going to have all of these going on mm. in your church. Maybe not all of them, but some of them. Yeah. Um, and I think this is part of the problem. Like it used to be, oh, what do I preach to? You know, I remember early on there's like you're preaching to the Christians in your congregation, but there may be unchurched people there as well. Yes. So how do you preach for them both? But now you've got all of this happening. Yeah. And um, so you're almost having to do this thing of, of you know, I remember Keller, Timothy Keller talking about, you know, in New York he's, he's preaching to someone who might be a an uh a non-practicing Jew it might be someone who's an atheist, someone who's a lapsed yeah. Catholic. You know, there's multiple different people. You need to think like that now. But almost with all of them, practice the thing. What's the sin? Okay, mm. well, what's what does the Bible say about sin? Yes. Um, again, all of these are going to have yeses and nos. There's elements where there is truth in, in elements or well, there's things that are yes, but then there's also big no's. Um, yeah. You know, there's often there are things that we don't know about as the public obscured and have there been conspiracies throughout history? There's times where there has, mm. you know, um, but therefore then when that runs into the answer in of itself, that's when we get wrong. You know, we, we go into really bad places. So I would encourage people, see your call as a missionary even yeah. if you've never left your hometown. Yep. Um, do your own contextual theology. I don't mean make up stuff, but more that missiological engagement with this stuff. Mm -hmm. How does the biblical story, which is the one true story, speak into all of these things um, and critiques them? You know, Jesus's death on the cross means that we don't have to atone, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, uh, in, in our own strength, yeah. you know, through the market or people spilling blood in a in a war that may not be justified. You know, mm. all of these things, um, I think this is we the, – the way forward is with what's coming towards us. And in five years, we might redo this and there could be like seven more things yeah. that no one's even thought about now or that are on the fringes of the internet that become mainstream. But I think the task is deconstructing um, these – ideologies with a yes and the no of the gospel yeah. and pointing people towards the gospel because, again, all of these are going to fail. My concern is that the one that we will see growing perhaps in five years is nihilism, mm. that when people go, man, I was, I was pushing the critical theory thing or I thought the market was going to save us or I believed all these conspiracy theories and now I'm just this lone person isolated from my friends and family. I think there's a point where all of them fall short of the glory of God. And that's a gospel opportunity to, to speak out the truth of the one true story mm. and the one true Lord over the entire universe, Jesus, and also to live out kingdom alternatives to this stuff. You know, yeah. at the end of the day, ideologies are ideas. What we get to live out is the ecclesiology of the church where yeah. people come and experience grace, come and experience the life of Jesus. That's our hope. Mm. That's what we're called to do. Um, so yeah, you know, we've got the Holy Spirit empowering us mm. um, to, to do this task. Don't be, don't be intimidated. This is what the church has always done. And I'm actually really hopeful if people do this for, for the future of the church. Yeah, super encouraging. And I'm gonna end it on that note. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks, Daniel. See Thank you next you. time. See ya.